Let's talk for a moment about power. Not a word that's often associated with the church, especially the church in the West. If you were to ask my friend Benjamin Kwashi, the bishop of an archbishop of Jos in Nigeria about power, he would have a lot to say about power. Because for him, if he doesn't have power, he won't make it through the week as a Christian. He has Boku Haram in his backyard. He also has other terrorist groups in his backyard. His wife was given up for nearly dead, among the many other things that has happened to them. His neighbor was killed not too long ago. He relies on the Holy Spirit. I remember taking a class in the book of Acts in seminary and realizing that in every single case in the early church, if the Holy Spirit didn't intervene and God didn't come through, they wouldn't have made it. And my professor made clear that that's actually the way the church is supposed to live all the time. That's how much power matters. And Paul actually says this in a throwaway line in the Corinthian correspondence. He actually says this. He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, which is the word dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. Now think about what happened and think about power and ask yourself, if you were there and you were them, what you would be thinking and what you would be feeling. The problem with Pentecost is we already know the story, so we already know what happened, so we think of it retrospectively. But we have to remember that the apostles to whom it happened didn't know what was going to happen. In fact, they were in many ways not prepared for what would happen because Jesus said to them after the resurrection, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he said, wait, which makes no sense, right? Why should they wait? They, were, they sat at his feet for three years. He appeared on a number of occasions over 40 days, and he says, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. Sounds like pretty good preparation to me. So go. No, wait. Wait for what? They don't know. Wait for how long? Not told that either. So they're all gathered together in one place in a posture of prayer, and all of a sudden, boom, the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, Make sure that you understand the significance of this. This is one of the three great beginnings in all of the Bible. The first is when the Holy Spirit broods over the without form and void in Hebrew at the beginning of creation. And all of a sudden, we go from nothing to something. That's the first time the Holy Spirit showed up. The fact that we're here as opposed to not here, that there's a universe, that there's an earth, that we have bodies, all of that is as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the beginning. The second great beginning is when the same Spirit that hovered over the formlessness and void at the beginning hovered over Mary's womb in Luke 2, and then boom, came and the incarnation happened, and the author of the story entered his story. And now we have the same Holy Spirit that was there at the beginning, and the same Holy Spirit that gave us Christmas and brooded over Mary's womb. Now the Holy Spirit is brooding over the womb of the church, and down he comes. And what happens? Look at your text and think. There are three S's. First of all, there's sound. Second of all, there's sight. And third of all, there's speech. And they all matter. It says, and I quote, The sound like, look at verse 2, a mighty rushing wind. They heard it. They felt it. It filled most of the house, a little bit of the house, half of the house. No, no, no. The entire house. I still remember Hugo in 1989 when we were living in Sumter in our little townhouse when there was 102 miles an hour that came over. And the one thing I remember above all the other things is the sound. 
because I've never heard wind sound like that. And I pray to God, I never will again. Because you don't forget it. It makes quite an impression. This is that kind of sound. Not just that, though. Tongues as of fire, which is why red is one of the colors for today. They can see what's happening. They can feel it. They can hear it. And as if all that is enough, then we have speech. And did you catch what happened with the speech? There's a massive diversity of people, and all of a sudden they all start speaking in different languages. So it's like some were speaking Italian, some were speaking French, some were speaking German, some were speaking English, etc. And the people who were speaking didn't understand what they were saying, but other people who were there did understand what they were saying. So it's like my dad grew up in New York City, so you're on a, you're an 8 million people city, right? So there's gazillions of languages in New York City. And all of a sudden, somebody's standing on a street corner, and he's talking. All of a sudden, everybody starts talking, and you get 80 people speaking 80 different languages, and then you get another crowd that gathers around because they can't believe that somebody who doesn't know Italian speaks Italian, and there's somebody there from Albania, and he's speaking Albanian. What in the world does that actually mean? And can you see, brothers and sisters, that this is the great reversal of the Tower of Babel, is it not? You remember Babel back there in Genesis 11 when they decided how great they were, right? This is a, this is, if there's ever a story for our age, it's Babel, right? They decided that they were great and they were going to just tell you how great they are. And so they erected a tower and God said, no dice. And he confused them and he sent them apart, but he also confused their languages. And now the very people that tried to say, we're great together, and got scattered, and got their languages confused, are all brought back together. It is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational group of people, and everybody is diverse, and yet they're all speaking in such a way that everybody else can understand. It is unity in diversity, and diversity in unity. Now, do you actually think, if you were there, that anybody was saying, gee, you know, is this powerful? That's not the question. The question is, what's this? That's the question. The question is, is not this powerful? The question is, what kind of power is this? What's going on? In fact, some people actually decide a great off-ramp this. They're drunk. Of course, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Hard to argue that most people are drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Even back then, this was true. And certainly for a crowd to be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, ridiculously absurd. But they had to come up with some explanation because it was so bizarre and so powerful. So let's talk for a moment about power. Can I just remind you as we begin our series that this power you see in this passage will be with them throughout the story. So for example, in Acts chapter 4, which we'll get to in a moment if Jesus tarries and history continues, they actually are told by the, the, the uh, local authorities, you guys are causing too much trouble, so could you please not speak of this Jesus guy anymore? That's the one thing they cannot do. And they go back and they say, well, we've been told not to speak in Jesus. And they all pray and they pray for more boldness to speak Jesus even more clearly. And it says, and I quote Acts chapter four. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace, grace was upon them all. Later in the book of Acts, they will have this accusation hurled at them. They are turning the world, the whole world, upside down. Boom. Now you know about power. 
You know about power because you know about natural power. And I think the best way to get at the Holy Spirit's power is to start with natural power and then go up. So let's think of a, of a, a simple example of natural power as one illustration of this for just a second. So there are lots of great places that you should go to in the United States if you get a chance. You might have your list. I have mine. But there are certain ones you just can't. You've can't, you got to go to the Grand Canyon. you just got to. But Niagara Falls, you know, needs to be up there. If you get a chance to go, you should go. It's awesome. And uh, the American Falls are great, but the Canadian Falls are better because it's a horseshoe. And it's bigger and there's more water. Now, the people who study these things tell us that 3,160 tons of water flows over Niagara Falls every second. That means 75,000 gallons of that falls on the American side, and are you ready? 681,000 gallons per second, I'm saying, falls over the Canadian side. Now, I'm still not done, because if you go to the Niagara Falls, which I highly recommend, you can actually get on a boat called the Maid of the Mist, and you can be taken right up into the Horseshoe Falls. And you actually get special goggles so you don't get your eyes all mucked up. And we still have a picture of our kids beaming with this water and these ridiculous goggles. But we'll all we'll always remember it because it's just so much water so fast and it makes the boat rock so hard and it causes so much foam and so much water vapor. You just don't forget it. Now that's one illustration, just one, of natural power. And we're talking about supernatural power, which is more. Let me give you an illustration from church history also. So a number of years ago, I'm studying church history, and I come across this phrase, Holy Ghost Holes. That's H-O-L-E-S, right? So everybody with me, Holy Ghost Holes. And this is in reference to the church. And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, what? What's a Holy Ghost Hole? I... I've been to a lot of churches. I've been to a lot of medieval churches in Europe and England, you know, big cathedrals. I never heard of a Holy Ghost hole. What's a Holy Ghost hole? Well, it's actually specifically for Pentecost. I didn't know about it. It actually came to be in the medieval church specifically for Pentecost. Are you ready? In the roofs of some medieval churches, they had holes specifically for Pentecost. Oh, and why? Good question. The reason is because they lowered real real doves down out of the hole during the Pentecost service. Still not done. While the doves came down, they had trumpets blasting throughout the cathedral. Still not done. They also had straw, which was burning, falling from the ceiling. Now, do you actually think that if there was a live dove descending and a whole bunch of trumpets blaring and fiery straw descending and landing in your pew that you'd think, oh, it's just a normal Sunday? (laughs) And that's the point. That's precisely the point. That makes sense, Holy Ghost Holes, now that I know what it is. I can't believe I've never heard of it before. Don't try it. Oh, darn. I'm, I'm tempted. But it's a very wonderful illustration of the fact that what we're dealing with is power. So many things could be said about this in terms of the power of the Spirit and the power of the Gospel. But I just want you to think about the fact that if Jesus isn't safe, and I hope you agree that C.S. Lewis has it right, right? He's good, but not safe. Whatever gave us the idea, brothers and sisters, whatever gave us the idea that if Jesus is good, but not safe, the Holy Spirit is somehow safe or domesticated or some kind of cosmic ooze that we can control. No, no, it's the spirit of the living God, which means it's 
dangerous and powerful and significant. Here's Annie Dillard writing about the contemporary church, trying to get this point across. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of our conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea, listen to this, what sort of power we blithely invoke every Sunday? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill on a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church when we all should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may someday wake and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Yes, exactly. You just get the idea that if you went to a church where that kind of thing happened, you'd leave and wouldn't be the same. Oh, that was the expectation of the early church every time they gathered. Do you know that, brothers and sisters? Do you know that the same power is living in you that raised Jesus from the dead, that created the world, that fell at Pentecost? Do you live that? That's the first question. We all together so far. Second, it's a new community. Now, this isn't really in your text. It's really down in Acts 2.42. I want you to take it down if you're taking notes. But when the, the community is described, they're described as, in, in English, fellowship, which is the word koinonia. And what I want you to think about just for a second is, what is the nature of the community that the Holy Spirit is bringing into being? And what that word koinonia means in Greek is common. And here's the idea. It's not the same people. Right? Did you notice who's preaching by any chance? It's that Peter guy. You remember him. He's the guy who impetuously got out of the boat and looked at the water and went glug, glug, glug. Remember him? And he also denied Jesus three times, right? He preached the Pentecost sermon to which the people responded, and I quote, what must we do to be saved? That's every preacher's dream. It's not the same Peter. That's not the Peter that impetuously stepped out of the boat. That's not the Peter that denied Jesus three times. That's the Holy Spirit Peter. That's the Pentecost Peter. That's the post-Holy Spirit falling Peter. It's a different Peter. It's a different group of people. It's an entirely different community. How is it different? It's different in this sense. This is a very hard idea to get fully across in English because it's so rich. But the idea of this word common has three dimensions. So stay with me for just a second. It's about God, who himself is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first dimension of koinonia and common is that God shares into the church who he is in common, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the people of God. So we, as the body of Christ, share God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because he shares in himself with us. That's the first dimension. The second dimension is we, as the body of Christ, share with each other. So among, we share among each other, the commonality of who God is and how God works with us. And here's an exciting thought, and it's an important thought, and maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't. But you have things in your life that have happened, and you have abilities to see parts of God's character that are different than me and vice versa. So actually, when you get more Christians together, you actually get more experience of God because the God who shares in is the same God, but we all experience him differently. But when we get together, what we share in common with one another helps us each to get more of God together. Still not done. First, God shares in. Second, we share among. But the third, and probably the most important is, then the community shares what they have in common and what God shares in out. 
with the world. It inevitably has a centrifugal force. It goes inevitably out. It's an entirely different group of people. Later in the book of Acts, one of the phrases that will be used to describe them is they have everything in common. It's kind of an interesting phrase. You wonder if there's any church in America that the people in the community would say, you know, they have everything in common. That's actually what was said about the early church. And it wasn't an insult. It was a descriptive that they felt was honest and accurate. It's a quite astounding standard. But that's what happens when the Holy Spirit actually gets involved. Because it isn't our house, actually. It's God's house. They aren't actually our children. They're God's children. Right? And, And you are my brothers and sisters. It's the body of Christ. You are a gift to me, and I am a gift to you. Well, you knew it was coming. Here comes your C.S. Lewis quote for the morning. He's got a great insight on this aspect of the church. And he gets at it backwards. He goes at it negatively to make a positive point. And i got to give you the background first to make it make sense. So Lewis had friends his whole life, and two of his closest friends were Charles Williams, who is Scottish, and another story for another time, a novelist and a theologian, really interesting guy, and who may be known to you, may not be known to you, and J.R. Tolkien. You know him. Lord of the Rings guy. Now, when I say they're friends, I mean real, the quantity of friends. I mean, so they went to the pub together every week. They read manuscripts that they wrote out loud to each other. That's a very hard thing to do. <laughs> Can you imagine C.S. Lewis critiquing your manuscript? <laughs> That's, that sounds terrifying to me, but J.R.R. Tolkien critiquing it doesn't sound any better. Right? And, but, and, and they took long walks together, and they, they wrote things and shared manuscripts independently in people's studies and then got feedback and all that kind of thing. Now, you know what I'm going to say. They did this for years, decades and decades. But inevitably, one of them is going to go from this side of glory to the next first. So what happens is Charles Williams dies. And this is Lewis's reflection on his experience of what that means. And it's absolutely incredibly profound in terms of what it teaches us about the church. Listen to this. He says, Charles Lamb says somewhere that if there are three friends and A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, he writes, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. But I myself am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specific Carolyn joke. He means... Carolyn joke, he means Tolkien joke, right? So you get what he's saying? He's saying that what happened is his friend died, and what he realized is what you would think counterintuitively or intuitively, depending on how you're thinking, is, okay, great, Charles Williams died. There's a sense in which I get Tolkien all to myself. So it's better. And what he finds is the opposite. It's actually worse because he loses what Charles brought out of him, but also what Charles brought out of Tolkien. So he actually gets not only less because Charles is gone, but he gets less of Tolkien, and Tolkien gets less of him. Which means what? It means the other way around is also true, which means each of us brings more of God to the other. And he closes this magnificent paragraph this way, first with a reference to Isaiah chapter 6, and then with a reference to Eucharist in heaven. In this, he says, friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance to heaven itself, where the multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition that each has of God. 
For every soul, seeing God in his or her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah 6 are crying, holy, 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 to one another. Now let me just pause there because while we go flying by, and let me tell you something about Scripture. I don't caught what he just said there, but I was a Christian for a long time. And I took great pride in the Holy Holy because it's kind of cool. You know, in heaven, they're Anglicans. They're saying Anglican liturgy, right? <laughs> holy, holy, holy. But I, in Isaiah 6, if you remember the setting, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He's in the temple. It's a worship service. So I always thought as a young Christian, holy, 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 which is said by these angels, was what they were saying in worship to God. Did you hear what he said? Look at the text. That's not what they're doing. How did I not notice that? Duh. Because I wasn't paying attention. That, says an old author, is why the angels in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. They're actually talking about the awesomeness of God, each to the other. And here's the last sentence. Boy, will this preach. Thus, the more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. Boom. Wow. And every parent knows this. You have a second child as opposed to the first. You don't get more love. You, get, you don't get less love. You get more. And you don't love, love the first child less. It just expands, and you can't fully explain it. You love them because they're your, they're your child, and you, you love them because they're theirs and because they're there, and you can't fully explain it. But there's more love and the same love in a rich and deep way. And that's just a little teeny illustration of the profundity of the depth of the fellowship of heaven. Now, this is crucial for you to understand, brothers and sisters. What this means is that, that the church, if it's working right, is actually supposed to be a little approximation of heaven on earth. In spite of all our inadequacies and in spite of all our insecurities and our flaws, yes, yes, that's all true. But actually, we're practicing for eternity. I don't know if you know that, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. People actually are supposed to look at us and get a glimpse, just a glimpse. We see in a mirror dimly, I acknowledge that, but, but to get a glimpse of heaven. And the richness that we share with one another is part of the power. Oh, look at the Christians, how they love one another. Is supposed to be the cry of a community that sees a real church. Do they say it about us? Do we live that way? Do we share that way in our small groups and with our families? Just a question. So first, new power. Second, new community. Still not done. Last, new hope. This is a simple point, but it's very profound and very important. If you look at this passage and you think about the earliest Christians and what the community that's unleashed is like, there's one characteristic above all, and that is they hope and they live every day in the light of Jesus' coming in such a way that they actually believe that when they get up in the morning, it could be the last day and Jesus could come back that day. In fact, in Hebrews 9, at the end of the chapter, and if you're taking notes, I want you to take this down, it actually describes the church this way. Think of this. Eagerly waiting for him. Right? Now, you know, you have children, I have children, right? Our children don't usually wait eagerly. If they wait eagerly, it's because we're doing something they really want to do, right? But the early church is described every day as eagerly waiting for him. And if you look at the church in the West and you ask the question, what's the difference between the early church and the church in the West? Surely one of the pieces has to be this. We just don't live that way. We don't think history could end tomorrow. We don't think Jesus could come again. 
But we pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, because in the New Testament there's only two days, only two days, today and the last and great day, the terrible day of judgment. Those are actually the only two days that you have. Newsflash, today is the first day of the rest of your life. It's also the only day that you have. And all sorts of Christians before us knew that and lived it. Now why does this event make them so sure Jesus is going to come again? Well, I appreciate you asking the question. Here's the answer. It has to do with last week, and it has to do with the unfolding history to this point. You remember last week, the ascension? And they're described, it says they were, it's, it's a triple superlative. It's fantastic stuff, this. It says they were looking up, looking up intently, up into the sky. Luke is bending over backwards to give you a sense that they're just stuck looking up as heavenly stargazers. It's entirely wrong. It's exactly how the church shouldn't be. But we should be pastorally sympathetic because the guy who left, they loved more than life itself. They didn't want him to go. And when that happens, if you're in somebody's hospital room, you just keep looking after they die. You do that. That's what they're doing. And the two men, the angelic visitors, they come and they rebuke them and they say, why do you stand there looking up into heaven, right? And then they say this. This is the key point for us this morning. This Jesus, whom you saw leave, will come back in the same way. Question. How did he leave? Personally, visibly, gloriously, suddenly. Answer. How will he come back? Personally, visibly, suddenly, gloriously. How do they know? Because they were at the ascension and they were looking up and they'll never forget it. But also they know because Pentecost happened. And why Pentecost matters is because God promised that if they waited, something would happen. And guess what? The God who promises keeps his promise. Right? Did you notice that he said, wait for the promise of the Father and he will clothe you with power from on high? Well, this qualifies as a fulfillment of that power and that promise because God keeps his promises, which means what? It means God also promised that he will come again. He says in John 14, I will go and prepare a place to you that I will come again and take you to be with me that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise. And the early church lived that promise. A number of them died. Some of them crucified upside down because they believed that promise. It means that we have a hopeful future. I taught the book of Revelation for two years when I got out of seminary in Sumter, which is a interesting exercise and about two-thirds of the way through the second year one of the men in the bible study came up to me after and he said can i try something he said, I, want, I just want to summarize what i feel like i've learned you know this is this is not a, this is not an easy moment for somebody who's teaching adult bible study because you never know what the person's going to say right i always hated it when you said xyz or something i was terrified and he said what you're telling me is in the end god wins and i looked at him i said that, that's it. You, you got it. That's right. Now you need to think about that. What happens if you're watching a uh, what I would call a soccer game, what Jonathan would call a football game, and you're rooting for your favorite team and you don't know the outcome? You're sweating bullets. You're, if they're losing, you're worried sick. What happens if you're watching the same game and you accidentally hit it on tape and you accidentally see the end and they win? And you go back to where you were watching. And all of a sudden it's different. You don't, they're behind. It's terrible. Three to one, they're losing. Aha, yes, but you know they're going to win five to three because you saw it by accident. So the way that you watch it changes because you know the end. That expectation completely changes everything and shines a light 
back on everything in such a way that your daily activity changes. Well, you got your CSVs. Here comes your Tolkien for the morning. I think probably this is the most profound thing Tolkien ever said. We could debate that. He said so many fantastic things. But Tolkien, if anything, was a phenomenal fantasy writer. If he knew anything, he knew about sacred stories and he knew about fanciful stories and children's stories and fairy tales. He might have been one of the greatest writers of fairy tales we've ever known. And there's a wonderful section in his writing where he's talking about the Christian story as a fairy tale, the gospel as a fairy tale. And this is from one of the greatest fairy tale writers ever. Listen to this. The gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a much larger kind which embraces the essence of all fairy stories. All fairy stories contain many marvels, artistic, beautiful, and moving, almost mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most conceivable eucatastrophe. That's a word he made up. That's E-U followed by catastrophe. That's good catastrophe, as if there is such a thing. Well, there is in Jesus Christ. But this story has entered history in the primary world. There is no tale that has ever been told that more people would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical people have later accepted it's true once they learned its merits. This story is supreme. It is true. Art has verified it. It's the ultimate fairy tale. It's the fairy tale that validates all other fairy tales. In other words, as a supreme fairy tale writer, what he's saying is the children's books have it right. Who knew? Everybody lived happily ever after. And the six-year-old right before bedtime gets a big smile because it's the way we all want it to be. And what Tolkien is saying is it's not the adults who got it right. It's the children's books that got it right. We actually all will live happily ever after. To be a Christian and to live Pentecost means the best is yet to come every single day. Now, I have two challenges for you, then I'm done. So new power, new community, new hope. The first challenge is uh, we're going to try something a little different this morning. When you come up for Eucharist, we're going to give you Eucharist if you want it. But we're also going to give you an opportunity to have Jonathan pray for you for the Holy Spirit to fill you. So you actually get an opportunity whatever prayer need you have for whatever way the Holy Spirit needs to fall on you. And I want you to think about that, and I want to encourage you to avail yourself of that. So not a normal morning because it's not a normal day because it wasn't a normal Pentecost. So sorry we're throwing a boomerang into the works, but that's just the Holy Spirit's way of reminding us that he blows where he wills, all right? So I want you to think about that. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, of all three of these points, I want to really land on the hope point and its importance for us in the 21st century as Christians. I'm at the point now where I keep preaching back and forth between these two campuses, so I can't remember who I've said what to when anymore, which is bad, (laughs) because I'm not sure if I'm repeating myself, but it doesn't matter because some things bear repeating. But what I want to say to you is, do you have any idea how important it is at the present time in our culture to live in hope? Hope for a Christian means this confidence grounded in the character of God. That's the essence of what hope means. It's a Christian virtue. And if you think of our Lord every single day, he lived that way. Who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So wherever I drop you in Jesus' ministry, he's always living with a definite confidence in the Father's ability to handle things no matter what happens. Even if it's Pilate saying, I'm going to hand you over. 
He's always confident. He's always hopeful. He always believes the best is yet to come. You are in a culture where that is entirely swimming upstream. What's in? Cynicism, doubt, despair, darkness, nihilism. Just go on social media. Just look at the culture. Just think about what's happening. First, we have a once every 100 year pandemic. Then to add uh, insult to injury, we have a once every 80 years European war. And now the economy is going wobbly. Great. Not exactly a prescription for hope. Guess what? Our brothers and sisters on whose shoulders we stand had a lot more difficult challenges than we did. Some of them got ushered into a coliseum and burned alive. And they did it with hope. Why? Because God is still God and the best is yet to come. And what I need to say to you is Pentecost is a grounding point in a culture which is begging you to fall into darkness. Don't fall for it. Live in confidence. God is God. God is good. God knows what he's doing. And God gave the same power to us that raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. So happy Pentecost, brothers and sisters. New power, new community, new hope. In Jesus' name, amen.